I had one tech job, and it was to flip this on at the right time, and I, I passed the test. Good evening, everybody. Am I the only one that didn't put enough sunscreen on today? I'm not embarrassed to spend a lot of time on the water with my boys today, stand up paddleboarding, and I somehow missed this region right here, so I'm feeling a little warm in the face. Uh, but it's good being with you all tonight. I asked last night, I, I understand, this is my first time here with the teaching series, the human teaching series, and I realized that not, this isn't like family camp where everyone's there every night, but people come and go. So if you, have, is this your first night coming out to a teaching series? Really great to have all of you here. Welcome here. Um, and I want to make sure you get a little on-ramp to what we've been doing uh, the last two nights. Um, calling this series this week, Be- uh, Becoming Like Jesus by Beholding Jesus. And it comes from 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul says the way we grow in Christ is it starts with a miracle. It starts with new birth, where those who were dead in Christ are made alive together with him. And Paul describes that like being unveiled and having an unveiled face and being able to see the glory of Jesus. And he says, with unveiled face, um, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another into his image. This is from the Spirit. This is a work of the Spirit. And again, the first night I just said two encouraging things to me as I follow Jesus is one, Paul reminds me and reassures me it's slow, it's by degrees. It's little by little, sometimes imperceptible from our perspective, and yet it happens. Um, But it happens primarily as we behold Jesus, not as we look inward at ourselves and try to fix what's there. That doesn't mean it doesn't require effort. It does in God's spirit. Um, But primarily, it's by getting our eyes fixed on the glory of Jesus and little by little wanting to grow to be like him. And so the first night we thought about Jesus as our faithful Savior who's worthy of our trust. Last night, we thought about Jesus as, um, and this is all, by the way, we're looking at at glimpses of these characteristics and characters of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. Last night, uh, we were in the parable of that that man who had abundance of crops and tore them down and built bigger barns, and God called him to stand before him that night, and we recognize that Jesus is our richest treasure, and when we behold him as our richest treasure, we understand and, and orient our lives around where abundant life is found. Jesus said, it's not in an abundance of possessions, but actually knowing the God who created you, the generous God, uh, and being rich toward him. So tonight, we're going to take another angle here at Jesus, beholding his glory from another angle. And I wanted to ask him to do a favor. You don't have to stand up, but can we just sing one last thing? There's no slide for it. I figured if we don't all know the first verse of Amazing Grace, then I'm in trouble here. But I think we we all know you sing Amazing Grace, the first verse? Okay. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. You've walked with the Lord for any length of time. You've probably sung that verse many, many, many times. I want us to sing it because one line in there, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Uh, The more I think about that line, it's a kind of lost that we haven't experienced in many other ways in our life. Here's what I mean. When I think back on on times in my life, and I've gotten lost plenty of times in my life, literally lost. Um, I can't think of an example of a time where I got lost, and I didn't very quickly, one, know I was lost, two, desperately want to get unlost, and three, got myself unlost, even if it was finding the right help. So, for example, um, you might have noticed that that my wife and I, our three children, were born in China. We adopted them at different times, and our first trip to China uh, to get our daughter Lily May, we arrive in Beijing, and the first morning we wake up, we're all jet-lagged, and we're up at like crack of dawn, like totally awake, and decide we're going to just head out from the hotel on foot and just explore a little bit of Beijing. It was the year that they were building, uh, getting ready for the Summer Olympics, so there were cranes everywhere building the, uh, the, ne- the bird's nest and the, the, what's the aquatic one with the bubbles on? 
But yeah, the cube, water cube. So we were like fascinated to just walk around. We'd never been to China before. And we very quickly just got ourselves lost in the heart of Beijing and uh, knowing no Mandarin and only having like the business card of the hotel with the address in there. And we were lost for a good while before we finally realized we started to ask some people and we'd, pull, we'd show people the card and they would try to give us instructions and we didn't help. Finally, we began seeing a couple of landmarks that we remembered and we slowly, we got our way back to the hotel, obviously, because I'm here today. Uh, we didn't just get lost in Beijing. Uh, but, but I knew I was lost. We knew we were lost. Um, and, and we were actively trying to get unlost. But when we sing a line like we sing in, in that hymn by John Newton, I once was lost, but now am found. That's a passive thing, right? I didn't get myself unlost, but someone else came and found me. It's a very different type of lost, and it's describing the type of lost, the spiritual condition of our hearts because we're all born in Adam. The, the nature of our hearts being born dead in our sin. Ephesians 2, Paul describes our lostness. He doesn't use the term lost. He used the term dead. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which one, we once walked. We were just following the course of this world, which was headed away from God toward hell. But we weren't looking for God. We were just following the course of this world, Paul says. And we weren't doing it against our will because he says we were just carrying out the passions and desires of our own hearts. We were happily following the course of this world until God, sovereignly, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, right? By grace, we were saved. By grace, we were found. So to be lost and then be found is a very different kind of lost and found than we typically experience in life. The kind of lost we are spiritually is a willful wandering kind of lost. I think it's the kind of lost that doesn't know it's lost and actually thinks it's found. It's happy. It's the kind of lost that's dependent on someone else seeking and finding and rescuing and calling and drawing out of darkness into light. Paul says in Colossians 1, rescuing us from the dominion of darkness, transferring us into the kingdom of the beloved son. It requires a rescuer coming after us, which tells us something about the kind of repentance by which we are saved. So to be a, a sinner is to be lost. And as we're going to see in our passage in Luke 15 today, to repent, which is something we do actively, is to be found, which is a passive thing says something even about our repentance that's initiated by a gracious Savior who's not content to leave us in our lostness but comes calling. So would you turn to Luke chapter 15? Right at the beginning of the chapter, Luke 15, 1 through 10. I want to read it and ask the Lord to encourage us from it. It's another parable. We were in a parable last night. This one is another one. And again, Jesus gives the context for it like last night, so he's not just telling the story for no reason, but something that happens at the beginning of this is why he stops and he tells the story. So let's read it. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told him this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go out after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and he comes home and he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I've found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house seeking diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, I've found the coin that I'd lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let me ask the Lord to speak here. Uh, 
Heavenly Father, I pray that this, these two parables, very similar parables told by our good shepherd, would speak to us here tonight in this chapel on this day at Hume Lake. And you would help us see with even greater clarity the incredible, beautiful, sovereign, gracious heart that you have for lost people like us and lost people like our world. And as we behold Jesus, we would be thankful for being found and we would be eager to be part of the finding work in this world in a greater way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, before we just jump into this parable, look at the, t- the two groups of people in this scene with me, all right? And notice who they are and what they're doing. Comes right out of the gate and he says, now tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear Jesus. Look back at just the last words of the chapter that just preceded this. Jesus is teaching publicly for anyone who will listen, and he's saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And who comes running? Who are the ones who said, I hear, I want to hear? It's tax collectors and sinners. Despised traitors to the Jewish people. Sold out to the Roman government for a buck to inflate the taxes and skim off the top and sometimes use brute force to, to, to get these taxes out of their, their brothers. I mean, they were just hated as, as, as traitors. And sinners is just this word of, of derision for just obviously publicly guilty sinners, egregious sinners who completely disregard God and his law, those kind of people. And right out of the gate here, those people are drawing near to Jesus, which is amazing when you think from the Gospels, what Jesus' main message was, was the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent, turn away from your sin, right? These are the last sorts of people that you would imagine are running to Jesus, right? I want to hear what you have to say. But there was something about Jesus, it seems, that was drawing these people that didn't push them away or alienate them but drew them in wanting to hear what he had to say about this kingdom of God that was at hand. And I think the answer is in what we're going to see Jesus doing and what gets these Pharisees so grumbly. Look at the other group here. The Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling about what? Well, Jesus is receiving and eating with these sorts of trashy people. He's not shunning them or turning them away or... uh, conveniently not noticing them, pretending like they're not non-persons. He's inviting them near and sitting and, and, and eating from the same plate that gets passed that those tax collectors touched. And they're not happy with this at all. They're grumbling, it says, which is a bad sign. This word that Luke uses right here is a unique word. It only comes up twice in the whole New Testament. Right here and a few chapters later when Jesus goes and eats with this guy Zacchaeus, another chief tax collector, and he says, Zacchaeus, I want to eat at your house today. And the Pharisees grumble again, right? Two times in the New Testament, but in the Greek Old Testament, when the Old Testament got translated into Greek, nine times this word comes up, and every time, guess who it's, it's describing? Well, in the Old Testament. So think about Old Testament stories. Who, was, who, who were the n- notorious grumblers of the Old Testament? Israel. Every single time when Israel grumbled against God, God rescues them with a mighty hand, a gracious hand, and the next day they turn around and say, you just brought us out here to die. And they grumble against God, or they grumble against the prophets that God sent and the deliverers that God sent. So this is a bad sign. These Pharisees are in bad company, right? They are, they are, they are looking a lot like uh, their predecessors who it's not gone very well for. But in their view, this guy Jesus was defiling himself he was showing approval of these, the sins of these people by sharing a meal with them. In their view, the fact that he was doing this invalidated any claim he was making to be sent from God because surely someone sent from God would not eat with people like this. That they couldn't have been more wrong. Jesus wants us to see that in sitting and having meals with the worst of the worst... Jesus was uh, manifesting and displaying the very heart of God. 
So Jesus launches into this series of three parables. We're going to look at the first two tonight, but altogether they explain why is Jesus receiving and eating with people like this. Now, you might notice, maybe these are very familiar stories for you. If they're not, you might have noticed the first two parables that he told are very similar in their plot line, right? They just remove the characters and switch characters and switch lost things. So it's either a shepherd or a poor woman, and they respectively lose something valuable, one sheep or one coin, and they do the same thing. They go out and they, and they make an exerted effort a, a, a sincere uh, effort to find their lost item. And then they both, when they find it, they return, gather people together, and throw a party rejoicing that this one lost thing was found. Like, that's the basic plot line of these two. Now, we're not going to look at the third, but maybe you're very familiar with it. But the third story in this sequence, I love Jesus and the way he tells these parables because he sets them up to think the, perils, the third parable is going to be over halfway through. Because the third parable, there's this son now, not a lost sheep or lost coin, but an actual sinful son who offends his father by saying, I want to live as if you're dead. Can I just have my part of the inheritance now and go enjoy it? And he goes off into a far country, he squanders it all, and he makes a complete, you know, utter wreck of his life, and he's eating out of the pig troughs, as you probably know, and he finally comes to his senses, and he repents, and he comes back to the father, and he's received. Now, after the coin and the the sheep parables... The father throws the party for this prodigal son, right? And I bet everyone listening to the story was thinking the third story was over right then, right? It ends when there's a party over the lost thing or person being found. But that's only half of the third story. You see, in the first story, there's one of a hundred sheep are lost. In the second, there's one of ten coins are lost. But then Jesus pulls a fast one. In the third story, two out of two sons are lost, not just one. And the first son is found. He comes to his senses and he remembers, my father is a gracious man and he comes back. But very inconveniently for these grumbling Pharisees to whom he's telling this story, the second half of story three has this other son that resents the grace of the father who receives back this repentant son. And he's not okay with it. And he sits outside the party uh, uh, stubbornly grumbling about the love of the father for a son like that. And leaves this big old fat elephant in the room at the end of this for these Pharisees and scribes. So, are you going to keep being like this reluctant son or are you going to join the party? So here's the big question of these first two parables. What do they teach us about the heart of God that explains why Jesus receives and eats with sinners? I preached on this passage at Grace about a year ago, and one of my good friends, Steve Earle, a couple of weeks later, he had had a major uh, surgery on his ankle um, and had to be home, so he watched our live stream, and he sent me a little video clip of the sermon with three times in a row I said that Jesus receives and eats sinners. (laughs) He even put captions every time it came up. I'm like... And this was in the first service, right, that they recorded. So I come home, and I said to Betsy and my daughter, Lily, I'm like, Steve sent me this video. I said three times that Jesus receives and eats sinners. And Lily, my daughter, says, oh, yeah, you said that in the second service, too. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me? It's been like three days. So anyway, I'm going to say that in advance. I may say Jesus receives and eats sinners, and you know that I mean with, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. Back to the parable. So here's... Uh, What is it about the heart of God that these two parables display for us with some visuals that help us not just understand the facts of the matter, but kind of feel the heart of God, right? That explain why Jesus receives and eats sinners. Two big things. Number one, did I say it? Oh, I jinxed myself. I knew. (laughs) Betsy, give me a little like hands up or something if I say it. The first thing these parables teach us about the heart of God is that he will go to great lengths to seek and to save the lost. That God will go to great lengths. Notice in the lost sheep parable how that parable depicts this willingness to go to great lengths. In that parable, the shepherd is like God, and he goes out after the one that is lost, right? He takes the initiative. He knows that sheep is not going to wander its way back home. Unless I go find that sheep, I'm going to be a 99 sheep shepherd, right? And then he leaves the 99 in open country, and he goes out after the one that is lost. Now, I don't think that this means this is the dumbest shepherd ever, and he's willing to risk 99 sheep for one sheep, 
I don't think the point is that this one sheep is more important than the 99 necessarily. I think the assumption they would have all had is if you have 100 sheep, there was someone else to watch after the 99 while you go look for the one, right? I think the point of this is that to this shepherd, this good shepherd in this parable, a loss of one out of 100 isn't sufficient, isn't okay, right? It's not an acceptable loss. As far as the shepherd is concerned, this isn't a cut your losses situation, which is made even clearer by the next word. He goes out after the one who's lost until, un- until he finds it. In other words, I'm not going to go give it a good hour, and if I don't find him, well, sorry, got to cut my losses. He's not returning to the fold without this one sheep, according to the story Jesus tells. And we also see the great lengths to which he's willing to go in what he does when he finds the sheep. And when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders. So in this one snapshot of the heart of God for sinners like tax collectors, um, he is willing to uh, not just find the sheep, but carry the sheep all the way home. The sheep needs more than just being found. He needs to be brought all the way back into the fold, and so do we, right? Right? Our need for the good shepherd isn't just to find us, but to get us all the way home, right? God's great lengths to seek and save us follow us all the way through our Christian lives, through this process of making us from one degree of glory to another, like Jesus, until the day Jesus returns and that process is finished. In this picture, I think, of God's willingness to go to great lengths, It's depicted as a willingness to endanger himself and a willingness to shoulder a great burden. Those are sort of the the visual images of parable number one. Look at the one with the woman and the lost coin. It's getting at the same point, but it's wanting us to feel it in maybe a little bit different way. In this case, what is the great lengths that she goes to to find the coin? Well, she lights a lamp, and she sweeps the house, and she seeks diligently. So it's a different visual picture, right, than going out in the wilderness and and hunting down a sheep. But now it's in this dark little poor home. Notice this woman, no mention of a husband, so maybe Jesus implies that she's a widow. She's probably poor, lives in a small little stone house, maybe no windows, and it's dark and dirt floor and cracks and lots of places for a coin to get lost. And this woman gets down with a lamp on her hands and knees and starts sweeping the floor and, 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 and wiping away all the dirt and the filth to try to see where is this coin, right? At first, it might seem like the progression from the first parable to the second might be from something more valuable, a sheep, to less valuable, one, one little coin. But the, the numbers are what tell you here. In the first story, it's one out of 100 sheep, right? In the second one, this woman's got 10 coins, each one worth about one day's wages, so she's not wealthy. This is one-tenth of what she owns is gone, so this is desperate. And what she does is she gets down on her hands and knees with a light, and again, like the first one, until she finds it. She's not going to stop until it's done. But with sort of a different color than the first parable, the great lengths to which God will go to seek and save the lost here are painted in terms of condescension, right? Getting down low, and illumination, lighting a lamp and looking across the floor and finding this coin, getting down into the dirt and finding the one lost valuable thing. We'll come back to that. So, in terms of God seeking and saving us, what great lengths has God gone to to seek and save us? I want us to think about two very basic things that God's done to seek and save us. They both have to do with His Son. And He did it in sending His Son to us but he also did it in sending his son for us. And I think those two different ways that God has sought and saved us through his son are are brought out in these two different, slightly different parables. Here's what I mean. He sent his son to us in the lost coin parable with God seeking and saving, looking like this woman condescending and lighting a light in the darkness to find the lost coin. Think about the incarnation. God the son steps down from glory, takes on flesh, and he literally dwells among us, and he walks our streets. And he walked the streets where he could see through human eyeballs what we've done with this place. On Saturday, Betsy and I and our family, we were driving up through L.A. because we live in La Mirada, 
In the last couple of years, we drive up 101 a lot to my in-law's house, but we were driving up 101 on Saturday. There were some of those murals that I've grown up looking at, like for decades, in some of those underpasses. The one with the little kids, do you know that one that we drive through LA? And this time through, someone just gone through and tagged on every face, and we're like, oh, it, it, I mean, it's just a matter of time, right? But as we drove through, we were just sort of impressed with how, like, gross, this, like, channel of the 101 going through LA. And this is just a snapshot of our world. And, and I was thinking about this parable as we were driving again, thinking about Jesus in flesh walking our streets and going, look what they've done with this place. And here's this woman, she, in, in the parable, she gets down and lights a lamp and she's looking through the dirt to find this, this precious coin. And, and Jesus is saying, this is like what God is, is doing through me. He comes Jesus walking our streets, getting dust on his feet with his lamp and his broom in his hand, sharing meals with sinners at their tables and looking them in the eyes and calling them to himself. You know, sometimes this, 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 this line about Jesus eating uh, and receiving sinners gets used to sort of justify worldliness, like Jesus was okay with it, but it's anything but. He came with a, a lamp and a broom. He's not condoning sin or accepting or excusing it by having these meals with people like this. He's coming to shine a light and sweep away the filth of the crevices of, of darkness in their hearts so that they can see the light and come back to him. I was thinking about this question. What actions of the shepherd and the woman in the story corresponds to Jesus incarnated seeking and saving the lost. Because my first get inclination was that in each of the parables, the equivalent is the party at the end when the lost thing is found. Because Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, sort of having a feast. So it kind of makes sense in the two parables. Maybe that's the parallel. But the more I've thought about these two parables, I don't think that's it. I think what the, what, what the shepherd going out and looking for the sheep and the woman looking for the coin, that's what corresponds to Jesus receiving and eating with sinners. In other words, receiving and eating with sinners, you can say, see how I got myself in trouble. I said this phrase way too many times. You can see how doing that, this is the means by which he is seeking and saving the lost. Every meal Jesus had with people like this, it wasn't a celebratory meal for repentant tax collectors, right? Like, you know the Zacchaeus story that just comes a few chapters later? Zacchaeus has done nothing to celebrate yet when Jesus says, I'm coming to your house today. And as you read the story, it seems like over the course of this meal, as Jesus was saying whatever he was saying on this occasion, the lights come on to Zacchaeus and he realizes how wicked he is. And he stands up and he says, I want to give everything I've stolen and then some. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. So it's not a celebratory meal over a lost tax collector. The meal is the method by which Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. You follow me? We follow a Savior who seeks and saves the lost. And found people are supposed to find people. That's God's plan. That's the Great Commission. Found people, find people. As we become, by degrees, like the good shepherd who found us and is carrying us home, we grow to be like him and we want to be part of his work in finding lost sheep and lost coins in our world. And these two parables should probably remind us that most of that seeking and saving is probably not going to happen within the walls of your church. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen on a Sunday with someone in being invited to church and hearing the gospel and responding. But by and large, I think it's going to mean as the church, we need to go out, right? We, we need to go outside of walls and go to where people... I want to brag on someone here. Lee Yadav is a, a guy who came to our church just a few years ago. And, 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 and very briefly, Ye, Lee is from India, so he grew up in a Hindu family, but he rejected that faith as a young man and became an atheist, agnostic or atheist, he would say. And for many years he was there, and he was one of these people that he sincerely just decided, I'm going to try every religion that I'm aware of and sort of give it a try and evaluate it. And at the end, he came out the other end uh, an atheist until he encountered Jesus. I wish I could tell you his story about how he came to trust Jesus, but he did, and he became this bold evangelist in India, and he finally left India. Then he was in China, mainland China, for years as an evangelist, 
in a place that was so dangerous that he had a bag at home packed and a bag in his office packed so that if he was at one place and found out the police are coming, he could just take that bag and go. And one day that day came and he was at his office and he never saw his apartment again. He took that bag, got on a plane and got out of the country before he could get picked up by, he's just got an amazing story. But he ended up coming to Biola Talbot to do some grad studies and was at Grace while he was there. Now he's one of our missionaries we're supporting in Michigan. And you think, Michigan. He was in India and China. He's at the University of Michigan, and he, his mission is to reach, there's all sorts of national Chinese who are there doing graduate studies, PhD work and master's study work, and he has a heart. He's like, here, God's bringing the Chinese people who, for whom he has a heart to the States to study here for a time. And so he is there and he is on the job. And so I want to read you a little bit. His most, re- every prayer letter he sends out is just like, God is just working through this guy. But so I want to read you this. This is from Lee. Here's a guy who I think reflects the image of Jesus who seeks and saves the lost. And it's so simple. But listen to this. He said, I want to tell you about a basketball out- outreach ministry uh, that has, has begun. Uh, he says, I didn't put any effort into building this ministry. It just happened naturally. Listen how simply it started. I was dropping a student off at her dorm one day when I saw a group of Chinese scholars outside playing basketball. I asked if I could join them, and they said, yes. I told them, I'm not very good at basketball. But they said, oh, don't worry, they'd teach me. I also told them, I love how you get this right up front, that I follow Jesus and believe in God. In the beginning, this group consisted of a few research uh, faculty members and a few PhD students, and some of them made fun of my belief in Jesus. In fact, in one conversation uh, with a research faculty member, he expressed his hostility toward the idea of God um, and asked me not to discuss him with him again. (laughs) Didn't deter Lee. Despite these challenges, I continued to reach out to these scholars with the love of Christ. In the winter, so he just started playing basketball with him as a guy who didn't play basketball. I mentioned to them that the church I attend has a basketball gym, and I would inquire about offering it as a space for the University of Michigan students to play. Initially, they were skeptical about using a church, but two of them showed interest and approached me to talk to the church to request the basketball gym. I assured them I'd talk to the church and see if the church would be willing to provide the space. Anyway, they did, right? So he says, I faced difficulties in reaching out to this group, so I asked a colleague, Rich, to connect with them and assist them with their English. So he invited them to the house, set up a Christmas tree as part of their family tradition, and read the story of Jesus' birth. After finishing the Christmas tree setup, reading the story, I mentioned to one of the faculty members whose wife's name was Lydia, he's so bold, he says, how ironic it was for him to hate God when his wife's name came from the Bible. (laughs) This comment led to laughter, and Lydia asked Rich to show her her name in the Bible. Later, this same faculty member requested a name from the Bible for himself. I provided him with a couple options, and he chose David. We began playing basketball in the church gym, and our group slowly grew I started offering water and snacks to all the students who came to play basketball at church, and they began to join coming to the church building. The church pastor asked how the church could assist, so the church starts getting caught up in what Lee's doing. Uh, He suggested providing free meals after the basketball sessions, and the undergrad students appreciated this idea, and the numbers increased, and some of the research faculty and grad students began feeling guilty about the kindness shown by the church. One day, David approached me, David, who was named got a Bible name, right, approached me while playing basketball and inquired about the church's generosity. I explained to him that God had generously given Jesus to us so that everyone could be saved. Witnessing God's generosity, the church was happy to share the same generosity of God through Jesus with everyone. David eventually approached me again, expressing he and his wife's curiosity about why the people in the church were so generous. His wife suggests they talk to a priest to understand this kindness better, but David felt it would be more appropriate to ask me. I'm excited to see how God's using our outreach ministry to reach people with the love of Christ. During the summer, we welcome an additional 30 students into our basketball ministry. I'll continue to share more stories in my next newsletter, but this is a man who understands the great lengths to which God is willing to go to seek and save the lost. And as he beholds this Jesus, he's becoming like this Jesus. It's beautiful. So I said that we see it not just in, in, in the lengths that Jesus, that Jesus, the Son came uh, to us, but God sent his Son for us. Here's what I mean. I think God's seeking and saving is depicted in the first 
parable with the shepherd and the lost sheep in terms of taking great personal risk and shouldering the weight of responsibility of getting the sheep from lost to home, found. I think of Jesus' willingness in the incarnation to come for the ultimate purpose of enduring the hostility at the hands of sinners to carry the full burden of sin on his shoulders at the cross to atone for our guilt and get us back home to God. Listen to this from 1 Peter 2. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. At the cross, we see Jesus beginning to take each sheep onto his strong shoulders, carrying them home. And it starts with atoning for sin, but it continues as he gives us his spirit to crush the bondage of sin's power in our lives and by degrees restore the image of God in us until he gets us home. What else do they teach us? Not just that God is one who seeks and saves the lost, but even more amazing. If, if the Bible didn't tell us things like this about God, we would never guess this, right? But the second amazing thing is that these parables show us that God rejoices with great joy over each and every lost one who's found. Look at the lost sheep parable. I kept back a word. When the, the shepherd finds this lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. I've been trying to imagine myself as the shepherd going out after this one, finally finding it, laying on it on my shoulders, and I have to carry it all the way back. And I don't know if I'd be rejoicing. Think about it, when the shepherd probably discovered there was a sheep missing, right? When, what time of the day, you think? End of the day, bringing all the sheep back, right? Bringing them all back into the fold, 97, 98, 99. Yeah. Oh, it's the end of a long day. It's been hot. Tired, I'm hungry. There's this one sheep. All right, and going out into the night and looking and scrambling and turning an ankle on a rock and looking in sharp brambly bushes and getting scr- and finally finding this sheep and putting it and I, realizing I, I have to carry this thing back. It's it's worn out or it's injured or whatever. I got to carry this thing all the way back home. Now listen, we've been conditioned because of Bible story books to picture this. Nolan, show them that first picture. All right. I mean, who would resent carrying that little sweet thing back home, right? I mean, that little snuggly thing. Like, even I would like probably rejoice a little bit carrying that home. I mean, it's just so cute. But how about this? Show them this next one. I, f- I found this picture. That, that, that's a shepherd in Kazakhstan. Look at that terrain. I mean, you are going to roll an ankle if you're carrying that sheep home in that rainy weather like that. But here's this guy. This shepherd is precious. Wait, 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 wait. I imagine myself like this guy on the way home cursing this sheep the whole way back. You stupid sheep. You stupid sheep. You made me walk all the way out here and I have to carry you on my back. And then I roll an ankle. I'm like, I'm going to break my ankle. When I get you back here, you are never going out in the, you know, I'm, you know. That's not the shepherd in Jesus' story. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now, I found this picture and I know it's a cute little lamb, but I love the look on his face. He loves that sheep. He is, is just rejoicing over this sweet little lamb. Now, go back to the last one, Nolan. Imagine that guy's face on this guy, right? That's the guy. You got to mush those two pictures together, the rejoicing shepherd. Now, here's a serious question. Is that how you imagine God responds to you when you repent? Is that how you picture God right now carrying you home After failure, after failure, after failure, the same thing again? Come on. Is that the look that you imagine on his face just rejoicing? Or do you imagine God with a furrowed brow wagging his head over you going, I think I've got buyer's remorse over this one. I'm disappointed. This parable is to let us know the heart of God. He's rejoicing to carry you home. He knew all the trouble you were going to be on the day that he called you from death to life. He knew it all, past, present, future. You're not surprising him by how difficult it is to get you all the way to the finish line. And he's rejoicing in the, in the prospect. But there's one last thing that's even more amazing to me, that, a surprising image at the end of each of these parables that tell us about the heart of God. The parties, right? 
They each throw parties. The shepherd and the woman, they call together all their friends and neighbors, and they say, rejoice with me. My sheep, my coin that was lost has been found, and we're supposed to reason from lesser to greater. If a shepherd would throw a party and a woman would throw a party over a sheep or a coin, how much more would the God who created us to bear his image rejoice when that process begins where we are forgiven and begin to be renewed back into his image, and he's going to complete the process? How much more might he rejoice? Look at in the lost sheep parable. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And the point is, there are some righteous persons who don't need repentance. There are no such thing. There are people who think they're righteous enough, and we're going to get to them uh, tomorrow night, actually, which keeps them lost. But heaven celebrates over one sinner who repents. But look at the lost coin ending. It's almost identical, but there's one little word in here that adds something that I love. With the woman, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God, before the angels of God over one sinner repents. Do you see the difference in wording? There's not just joy in heaven. There's joy before the angels of God. Who is in heaven? Who exists in heaven besides the angels of God? Who is it that's rejoicing before the angels of God? That's not a, that's not a rhetorical question. Who, who, who is that? God, right? Who else is left? So in other words, just like the shepherd and the woman, woman in each of their parables is the lead rejoicer over the lost thing being found, God is the lead rejoicer every time a sinner repents. He's leading the worship. The angels are just singing along in harmony. The angels are beholding God rejoicing over sinners who are found. That's a staggering to me. As I was studying this a while back, it made me think of the image of Isaiah 6. When I was trying, imagining um, noise and worship in heaven, right? And if you know Isaiah 6, it's a very different sort of noise. Isaiah has this vision of God on his throne in the temple. And the train of his glory filled the temple. And there's these angelic beings covering their faces and their feet. And they're, and they're, and they're crying loud, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the thresholds of this temple, this div- heavenly temple in this vision are trembling. And Isaiah, even in the vision, falls on his face and says, woe is me, I'm an unclean man. I'm a man of unclean lips. The sound of the worship of the holy God terrified him. But this parable tells us that that is not the only sound that shakes the heavens, right? Now, that's true that God is holy, and that is a sound in heaven, but there's also the sound, like in this parable, of rejoicing in heaven, led by God the Father, before the angels of God, over every sinner who repents. In the little prophet Zephaniah, chapter 3, God's response to the repentance of his people is described as singing. He will rejoice over you, repentant ones, with gladness. He'll exalt over you with loud singing. Can you imagine the thresholds of heaven trembling from the exuberant rejoicing of the Holy One who is pleased with you because you're in Christ and he's perfectly pleased with Christ? Because Christ, the innocent one, honored his will to his very last breath, gave his life as a ransom for you, and brought, is now bringing you to glory. And God's rejoicing. Now, what about the sound of God rejoicing over millions who are found? These parables are supposed to evoke the same kind of rejoicing in us. Rather than the grumbling of these Pharisees who are, I can't believe you're eating with people like this, we're to get caught up in this and, and to want to be part of contributing to this joy in heaven. I'm going to end with this. There's a group in this scene I haven't mentioned yet. They've been unnamed, but they're the disciples. Because in this section of Luke, the disciples were with Jesus for all this. So when this happens and the Pharisees grumble and then Jesus starts telling these stories, the disciples are there hearing the stories and they're learning as they hear the stories. And they're learning that Jesus goes to great lengths to seek and save the lost. And he does it for the joy set before him, these parables say. Hebrews 12, 2 says that he went to the cross for the joy set before him. He endured the shame of it for the joy set before him. And these two parables give us a taste of the joy that was set before Jesus, the joy of heaven resounding with the praises of God at lost being found. 
And Jesus said, I want to fill heaven with that sound. And he went to the cross. What will make us willing to go to great lengths, like Lee, to seek and save the lost? It's keeping that same joy before us. We want to see heaven filled with the praises of God over redeemed sinners who are found. I'm going to close with a story of a woman named Doris Robbins. Can you just put the first picture up or in on? This is Doris. I met Doris in the last maybe six or seven years of her life and her dear husband, Wally, who had already gone to be with Jesus when this picture was taken. But they spent decades. He was a pastor. He went to his freshman uh, first semester at Wheaton, and then World War II happened, and he decided, I'm going to go get on a boat in the South Pacific and, and be part of you know, uh, fighting for my country and for, for freedom. And then when that finally ended, he went back and he went through seminary and he became a pastor. And he pastored in Can Eastern Canada and the East Coast, New York and New Jersey and Atlantic City, and finally for decades in Mesa, Arizona. And even after he'd retired, the church in Mesa, Arizona kept him on for years because they understood they were wise, and they kept him on as a sort of pastoral consultant and sort of associate pastor. And finally, when they finally retired, although they never really retired, um, they moved to, to Southern California, and they were at Grace with their granddaughter, Melissa, who's a good friend of ours. And we got to, Betsy and I got to know them in their last few years living in this little duplex on North Malden in, in North Fullerton. And Doris, to her final day, was an evangelist. Everyone who knew her, she loved praying for and sharing. She prayed for every one of her neighbors on North Malden. She sat on the porch, and she, knew, she could name everyone in every house that didn't know the Lord and how she was praying for them. And the desire came at an early age. A week before the Lord called Doris home, my son Levi, I brought him with me one day. It was the last day I saw Doris. The last day I went to her house, she was, uh, wasn't really, really in hospice. I guess she was. I mean, she wasn't dying of anything other than the, the Lord was just taking her home. She was 97. And so here's a picture my son Levi, we went over, he, he has a name tag on because he had been at Food Bank all afternoon. And we went over to Food Bank and just sat. He loved Mrs. Doris. When Mrs. Doris got to Grace, one Sunday, uh, Doris and Wally were up front as some of our volunteers to just pray after the service. And I walked up and I asked, would you just pray for my son Levi? We don't think he knows the Lord yet. And it, it seems hard to get through. And from that day on, Doris prayed for Levi daily. And Levi knew it. He would go after church, Mrs. Doris, and talk with him. So he, I brought Levi with me the last time we were with Doris before she went home uh, to glory. And as we were sitting there, we sang hymns and we read from Scripture, and she would just tell some delightful stories. But at one point, she said, I just, I just want to tell you a story. And she wanted to tell us the story of how her father trusted Christ when she was a little girl. She was just a teenager. I think she was 12. Oh, eight, she was 18. And she said, without going into details, that her father was a hard man. So you can imagine, if, if that's sort of putting it lightly, you know, he, he, was, he was not. His, her mom was a believer. Her father was absolutely not, was a hard man. But one evening at home around the dinner table, somehow conversation turned to the Lord, and her father brought up this sermon he remembered hearing preached when Doris's brother had been baptized. And that the pastor in that sermon had spoken about two houses, the houses, house of the found and the house of the lost, and as her dad was speaking at the table, his voice sort of got broke, and he said to Doris's mom, Edith, I don't think I'm in the house of the saved. I think I'm in the house of the lost. And as he was saying that, Doris had left the table to go to her room, and she heard it, ran back in the room, knelt down by his chair at the dinner table, and said, Daddy, you don't have to stay in the house of the lost. You can come into the house of the saved right now. And he got up and went to the living room, and they knelt down in the living room, and she led his, her dad to pray and trust Jesus. Now, listen, that's an amazing story to share with you, but that's actually not the main reason I want to share the story. The main reason I want to share the story, as we were sitting there with Levi holding her hand, and she had to tell us the story, when she got to the part about running back in and saying, Daddy, she got choked up. And she put her hand up. Eric was there, too. We were sitting in the living room. And she's, we had to kind of wait. And then she apologized. She said, I I'm so sorry, she said. Every time I get to that part, she said, I get so emotional when I remember the kindness of the Lord to save my dad. Do the math. She was 97 when she died. She was 18 that day. So almost 80, for 80 years ago, that had happened. And it was like the freshness of her joy at the joy in heaven over her dad hitting his knees was as fresh as it was when she was 18. I'll never forget it. 
And I have no doubt that it was that, her longing to see heaven filled with the joy like she knew was in heaven the day that her dad trusted Jesus that made her such a bold and earnest and sincere, prayerful evangelist. So as we close here, I just want to say, if you were once lost but now are found, uh, God has handed you a shepherd's crook and a lamp (laughs) and a broom. That's what Paul meant when he says, we are now, if you have been reconciled to God through Christ, you have been given a title, ambassadors for Christ. God has chosen to make his appeal through you and me for other people, be reconciled to God. Be found by God. He's already looking for you. And he's given us this, and he's made us ambassadors, right? And so to whom is Jesus sending you? Maybe to think about that this week and pray, Lord, to whom are you sending me? Who is lost around me in my life? Now, maybe you might end up thinking, I don't know by name one lost person. Everyone I know seems to know Jesus. And maybe the first step, like Lee is looking around and saying, is there a basketball game around here I can jump into and maybe figure the sport out as I go? Or is there an opportunity that God's put right around me that I just haven't even paid attention to? And begin like Lee to say, I'm not good at basketball, but I I can step in here and see what the Lord does. Can you imagine the joy that will resound in heaven when someone to whom you go is found? I want to bow and just give you one minute quietly right now to pray. Maybe even as we're thinking and talking about this, maybe as I share the story with Lee or as we're talking about Doris, uh, someone is on your mind. Someone you know is lost. Maybe it's someone that you just can't imagine them being found. You can't imagine them ever uh, humbling themselves like Doris's dad and saying, I don't want to be in the house of the lost. I want to be in the house of the found and, and turning from sin and trusting Jesus. And that just seems like it'll never happen, but it can happen. God's a seeking and saving God. The Holy Spirit is powerful. He makes dead come alive together with Christ. Take a minute quietly. If there's people who come to your mind right now, just take a minute and pray for them and say, Lord, send me to them. Use me as your seeking and saving uh, ministry in that person's life. If there's not someone in your mind, say, Lord, would you help me start praying and thinking and, and looking around my life with the intent to be part of your seeking and saving work in this world? Close with this verse. Uh, Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed.